Good morning. Please uh, find in your Bibles Proverbs chapter 8. It is one of the paradoxes of our lives that when we set our hearts on pursuing things that we think will make us happy, uh, we find that once we get it, there may be immediate satisfaction, but eventually these things disappoint us and leave us empty. It is because we are created for greater things. We are created to desire and crave and pursue greater things. As C.S. Lewis said in The Weight of Glory, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So what Proverbs 8 shows us is that when we pursue godly wisdom that's set before us beautifully here, we often acquire those lesser things and are able to enjoy them because we're satisfied first in the Lord. Now, chapter 8 is another speech, or a, we might even call it a song, uh, by wisdom personified. And again, you may find it helpful to see wisdom here as something similar to um, the Old Testament prophets who would call Israel back to their relationship with God based on the covenant with Moses. Wisdom is sort of like that, but calls us back to a relationship with God, not based on the covenant with Moses, but his covenant with creation. And that includes every person who lives. That includes all of us who are created by God. Even those who don't believe in Christ, they are part of this covenant of creation. And we live by those terms, whether we recognize it or not. And so, as, as with the Old Testament prophets, the voice of the prophet was the voice of God. I believe as we hear wisdom's voice to us, we'll actually hear the voice of God. We'll see and hear his voice, his authority and his promises that come from God himself. So let's look in the first 11 verses at Wisdom's Call. And again, as I read this, I'm just struck by the beauty <laughs> of chapter 8. I, I challenged you several weeks ago to start to take the Proverbs challenge, to read a proverb uh, each day according to the date on the calendar. Apologies to last chapters for February, but there's nothing we can do about that. Um, I... I want to memorize chapter 8. I haven't done it, but as I was reading and preparing and reflecting on this, I thought, you know, I just, I can, you know, I can remember a song. I can, you can do this, right? I mean, I've had songs in my mind from Leonard Skinner and ZZ Top in Chicago. Surely I can memorize Proverbs 8, you know? <laughs> so, surely I can memorize more worthy things. So, I'll just throw that challenge out there. I will confess I haven't done it. I'm asking you to do something I have not done myself, but I, I certainly hope to. So as we read, just, just really just try to enjoy this, okay? Not that it's, hopefully it's not a burden to enjoy this, but I'm just struck by the beauty of these words. So does not wisdom call out? Oh, and as we read, think about the difference between uh, the evil characters that we've encountered in our study of Proverbs so far. Just, just look at how... Wisdom speaks to us, but it is in a way that is uh, just radically different from some of the bad, bad guys we've encountered so far. So, verse 1, does not wisdom call out, does not understanding raise her voice at the highest point along the way 
Where the paths meet, she takes her stand. Beside the gate leading into the city, at the entrance she cries out, she cries aloud, To you, O people, I call out. I raise my voice to all mankind. You who are simple, gain prudence. You who are foolish, set your hearts on it. So let's just notice in the first five verses that wisdom is simply out in the open. There's no talk in secret. There's no hushed voices, no conspiracy, no approaches under the cover of darkness like the evil men and evil women that we've seen in the first few chapters of Proverbs. And as we've seen before, wisdom calls out to us, to all of us from a high place, a place that's visible, a place that is accessible to everyone. Again, this is God's covenant with creation, so it is meant to be accessible to everyone. Not just to the mystic on a high mountain who is all alone, not to the academic in the ivory tower, not to the scientist in the lab, not to the priest in the temple, but to you and me as we go through our daily lives. Wisdom seeks us, it calls to us, it is available and it is accessible to us. And it invites us to a pursuit more noble than anything we can imagine, anything we can set our hearts on. Anything else you set your heart on will disappoint you and maybe destroy you, but not wisdom. Now pick up in verse 6. Wisdom says, listen, for I have trustworthy things to say. I open my lips to speak what is right. My mouth speaks what is true, for my lips detest wickedness. All the words of my mouth are just. None of them is crooked or perverse. To the discerning, all of them are right. And they are upright to those who have found knowledge. Choose my instruction instead of silver, knowledge rather than choice gold, for wisdom is more precious than rubies, and nothing you desire compares with her. Now notice, again, the difference between wisdom and the smooth talk of the evil characters we've encountered in our study so far. For example, in, in Proverbs 3 and verse 12, it says, Wisdom will save you from, from the evil men whose words are perverse. And in chapter 3 and verse 16, wisdom saves you from the wayward wife with her seductive words. So wisdom comes to us with words that are very different, that appeal to very different parts of us, that call us to something much more noble, something much higher. So wisdom is instruction as we look at these verses. It is radically different from this. It is trustworthy in verse 6. Folly is not. Folly makes promises, but it doesn't deliver. Wisdom is true. You can believe it. You can trust it. And it is in opposition to wickedness. Folly is just the opposite. It is deceitful and delights in wickedness and appeals to wickedness in you. Wisdom is just. Wisdom speaks justly, appeals to justice. And it is in opposition to all that is crooked and perverse. Folly is just the opposite. It is not just, not concerned about what is right and wrong, and appeals and delights in perversion. Folly, I mean, sorry, wisdom, verse 9, is upright, but folly delights in wrong. Verse 11, wisdom is more desirable than gold and rubies. Folly, honestly, is less desirable than waste. So what are you pursuing? What are you giving your heart and your mind, your time, your affections to? So let's just think about this. Wisdom is good. It is right. It is just. It's desirable. There's nothing crafty or calculating or manipulative or coercive or deceptive, or destruction, or destructive. There is nothing twisted in God's wisdom. Who would not want this? I want, I read this, and I think, I want this. This is what I want in my heart, and life, and mind, what I want guiding me. But even the question, 
points us to the heart of the matter because it is, in fact, a matter of the heart. It is not the mind. It is not about what we know, but about what we want, what we desire, what satisfies us, what we pursue, what we yearn for and long for. Wisdom is desirable, yet not everybody sees it this way. In fact, most people do not. Most of the people that belong to this age do not see it this way. It says in verse 9, wisdom is upright, but not to everyone, just to the discerning. Wisdom is, is uh, right and true, not to everyone, but to those who have knowledge, not to the foolish. To those who delight in crookedness and perversion, wisdom is nonsense. This is not just a matter of taste or preference, right? I mentioned these song, old songs that are still in my head, you know, okay. You know, some people like those bands. I'm a huge fan of Chicago, okay? I'll confess it, that probably dates me and puts me in a big nerd category. I really, I've, li- I've been a fan since the 70s, okay? Off and on. Um, hadn't seen them in concert since 1984, but I got to see them earlier this year. It's awesome. Those old potheads rock, I'm going to tell you. Well, my sister... One day I was at my mom's house talking to my sister. She says, what's that awful band with the horns that you like so much? I'm like, yeah, okay. It's a matter of taste, right? That's okay. This is not a matter of taste. Okay. This is life. This is death. This is as real as it gets. This is eternity. So we, you may remember in uh, Genesis chapter 3, we saw that Eve made a choice. He, it says that part of her reason for, going for the, listening to the, the enemy was a desire for wisdom. And Paul picks up on this in Romans chapter 1 and verse 22 when he talks about people who reject God's self-revelation, who suppress God's self-revelation in creation. See, we're coming back to creation in this. And he says, Romans 1 verse 22, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. See, relying on your own wisdom makes you a fool. That's the heart of folly. And... By so doing, they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for images, and he gets specific about that. And this is the consistent testimony of the Word of God. If you reject God's wisdom, you don't just make your life harder. It doesn't, doesn't just mean that relationships are less satisfying or, or that um, you know, things don't turn out as well. You are an idolater. <laughs> you, you may not have a, some figure in your living room at home, but you have built your life on something that is not ultimate, on something other than Jesus Christ, and you are an idolater. And your false gods will not give you what you want. They might temporarily, but in the end, they will leave you empty, they will turn on you, and they will eat you alive and abandon your carcass. That is what idolatry does to us, because we are made not to pursue lesser things, but to pursue the Lord. We are made for the Lord himself. Now, it's true it doesn't look this way in a society with affluence and relative stability. As long as you don't look at Facebook, you realize society might be fairly stable. Um, But the day is coming. You just need to know. If you have built your life on anything other than Christ, whatever your hope is in, it will eat you alive. So we have a choice to make, as it says in verse 10. We must, as it says there, choose wisdom. It's not our default setting. Our default setting is folly. You understand default settings, right? I'm headache with my computer trying to type out this sermon, and there's some setting that I just 
I just really fought with. There's a default setting that I'm, well, it just, you know, almost turned me into what I'm preaching against today. So I'm going to move on. Let's look in verse 12, starting verse 12, at wisdom's value. So in verses 12 to 21, as we read that, what we see is we're invited to treasure wisdom. Notice what it loves, notice what wisdom loves, and notice what it opposes and what wisdom offers to us. Verse 12, I, wisdom, dwell together with prudence. I possess knowledge and discretion. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior and perverse speech. Counsel and sound judgment are mine. I have insight and I have power. So verses 12 and 14 have six synonyms for wisdom, prudence, knowledge, discretion, counsel, sound judgment, insight. Those are good things. Who doesn't want those things? All of these in one way or another describe how we navigate life, how we determine right from wrong, how we discern good from bad or best from good in the daily choices that we make. So if we want to gain wisdom, as it says here, it starts with the fear of the Lord. Okay, that's, that is, as we've said before, it is a humble reverence for the Lord, for a holy God to whom we must give account for our words, our choices, and our actions. Because all of those have consequences. All of our choices, our words, our actions all have consequences ultimately at the throne of God. And verse 13 tells us the qualities to which wisdom is opposed. Evil, pride, arrogance, perverse speech. These things hinder our pursuit of wisdom. And if you love these things, delight in these things, you will not find wisdom. Your vision is clouded, your ears are full, and your heart is satisfied with lesser things. Wisdom hates, God hates evil, pride, arrogance, and perverse speech. We can see now why it says at the end of Proverbs 4, guard your hearts. Remember when we looked at that, we said we have to watch what comes in, we have to watch what comes out as well. So watch over your hearts that these things not be a part of your heart. Now we see the things that wisdom brings to us, those lesser things that we pursue to our harm, actually come to us when we humble ourselves before the Lord and seek him. So in verse 15, it says, By me, kings reign, and rulers issue decrees that are just. By me, princes govern, and nobles, and all who rule the earth. So verse 14 mentions power right at the end, and then we see in 15 and 16 that wisdom is especially needed by those in power because, frankly, we are easily seduced by power. Uh, we just, especially Christians, we just don't do well, especially with political power. We're, we're a lot better on the margins. Um, apologies to the Republican Party. Anyway, <laughs> um, Kings, as it says here, rulers, princes, nobles, allied presidents and prime ministers and governors and generals and admirals, bring it in a little more locally, bosses and managers, pastors and elders, and virtually everyone who is in a position of leadership needs wisdom and should seek to lead by wisdom. Wisdom brings power. If you seek power, it'll destroy you. If you seek wisdom, the Lord may put you in a place of power and authority, and that is okay. That's good. You'll be faithful. But do you want power? Power without wisdom is disaster. This is uh, beautifully illustrated by the movie Bruce Almighty. It's several years old. Um, it has Jim Carrey in it, and he plays a man named Bruce who's in a fit of rage, yells out at God, 
that he could do a better job running the world than God could. And God, in the character played by Morgan Freeman, just basically says, okay, here's your chance. And he, he gives to Bruce all of his power for a day. And Bruce has all God's power, but he has none of God's wisdom and none of God's goodness. And it is a disaster. So, though it's a comedy, in real life, it's a tragedy. You, you, if you seek power without wisdom, it will eat you alive. It will, you'll be constantly craving more. It'll never be enough. You'll be, it's a disaster. So wisdom not only leads us to power, but it also leads to love. You want love? Love wisdom. Verse 17, I love those who love me, and those who seek me find me. So if you want love, don't let folly guide you to love. Don't let folly lead you to think pleasure is loved or to think that earthly relationships can bring ultimate satisfaction. If you want love, your first love needs to be wisdom, which points you to Christ as your first love. If you follow folly, the initial satisfaction will eventually give way to heartbreaking misery. Wisdom also leads to wealth. Look in verses 18 to 21. With me are riches and honor, enduring wealth and prosperity, enduring wealth and prosperity. My fruit is better than fine gold. What I yield surpasses choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness along the paths of justice, bestowing a rich inheritance on those who love me and making their treasuries full. So wisdom leads to a wealth. You know, wealth in this age, as it says elsewhere in the Proverbs, it says, don't set your heart on money. It will sprout wings and fly away. And it does. But wisdom gives us an enduring wealth. It's not like the wealth and honor that this age gives us. And you may or may not ever have a lot of money. From a New Testament perspective, if you know Christ, you can lose wealth and possessions and health and freedom and even life itself and still come out ahead. That's how Beautiful, that's how wonderful, that's how magnificent, how excellent, how worthy Jesus is. And it's what we've seen in the history of, of the church. People who have clung to him rather than to life itself. Because they have learned and, and lived what it says in Psalm 63. Your loving kindness is better than life. And it is. And so, yes, wisdom will... Uh, enrich you, wisdom will give you wealth, but that may not arrive in your bank account. Um, just know that. There, the, the false promises of the prosperity gospel confuse heavenly wealth with uh, earthly wealth. And it's, again, it's another disaster, seeking for lesser things apart from the wisdom of God. So now, in, in, starting at verse 22, let's see the relationship between wisdom and creation. A third section of this, again, this is like a song, so it's like wisdom sings the relationship of wisdom to creation. And seriously, as I read this, and as you, you see it on the screen, just enjoy it. <laughs> Savor the words. Try, try to imagine this. It's just, um, it is, I find it captivating. Okay. Verse 22, The Lord brought me forth as the first of his works before his deeds of old. I was formed long ages ago, at the very beginning when the world came to be. When there were no watery depths, 
I was given birth. When there were no springs overflowing with water, before the mountains were settled in place, before the hills, I was given birth. Before he had made the world or its fields or any dust of the earth, I was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundary so that the waters would not overstep his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was constantly at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his world, delighting in mankind. Isn't that beautiful? Just stirs my heart. It's like, I want this. I want to enter into this joy. I want this to, to, to captivate my heart. Now let's back up a bit because some are puzzled by some of the wording in verse 22 where it says, the Lord brought me first, forth as the first of his works. Uh, some English translations will say the Lord possessed me. Um, there's, uh, you've heard of the Septuagint, which is a translation of the Hebrew scriptures into Greek that was done before Jesus was on the earth. Um, it works uses the word that's translated created. Um, so you can see that translators have wrestled with this for a long time. Theologians have wrestled with it. Um, what does this mean? And it says in verse 23, I was formed. Verses 24 and 25, it says I was given birth. So how should we understand these origin passages? Now one day, when I was a university student, I hadn't been a believer in Christ for very long, uh, some Jehovah's Witnesses came to my flat and as we talked, they showed me 1 Corinthians 1, 24. It says, see, Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. And then they turned to Proverbs 8 and they said, see, wisdom had a beginning. It says God created wisdom. So Jesus had a beginning. And so he, he can't be God. Well, as a fairly new believer, I had no idea what to say. I think I'd do a little better in that conversation today. But it is a question. How should we understand this. Well, first let's remember this is poetry, okay? Wisdom's not a real person. This is wisdom personified. This is a poetic device. So we need to keep this in mind as we read through it. Then we also need to see the main point of this passage. It is that God created the world by his wisdom. Now most of other scriptures emphasize God's power and goodness, but here his, his wisdom is emphasized. We should not understand this to mean that, that there was a time that wisdom did not exist, and God created wisdom, and it became a part of his nature. Scripture tells us that God's nature does not change. Okay, so we, that would be a wrong conclusion to me. And, I mean, if you just think about the, the logic of this, a God who lacked wisdom would also lack the wisdom to create wisdom. Okay, so, I mean, there's just, this is a, a logical fallacy. God has always been infinitely wise. Okay. That's not the point of this passage. It is telling us that God, by his wisdom, created the world. And then, thirdly, we need to understand that the, that the emphasis here is not on the origin of wisdom, but on the relationship between wisdom and creation. That all creation is founded on God's wisdom. And we cannot escape this. We can fight it, ignore it, but we will run straight into it. It is, it is like the law of gravity. You just don't defy it. You say, well, an airplane defies gravity. No, it doesn't. It uses laws <laughs> in place, and it spends a lot of fuel to get a little bit above the surface of the earth. So 
This is not defying gravity. It's using the laws that are in place. So wisdom is part of the fabric and structure of creation. No part of creation is immune or disconnected from this. Verses 22 to 26 emphasize the priority of wisdom related to creation. So it describes this in eight ways, just in these few verses, mostly using the word before. So before there were hills and valleys and springs and oceans, there was wisdom. I was already there. This is not about wisdom's origin. It is about wisdom being ahead of before creation. And then verses 27 to 31 emphasize the presence of wisdom at creation. Also, eight different ways, mostly the most common phrase there is, I was there when. I was there when draws the circle, you know, he makes the horizon, he does all this. Wisdom, wisdom was there before there was water and springs and mountains and fields and hills and dust. Wisdom was there when he set the heavens in place, the horizon, the clouds, the deep. He gave the sea its boundary, marked out the foundations of the earth. Wisdom was there. Wisdom was there before. Wisdom was there when. Creation, wisdom is woven into the fabric and structure of creation and the lives that we live. Verse 26 mentions the dust of the world. It's literally the dust of the earth. Excuse me. This is only mentioned in the account of creation related to the creation of Adam. So this is likely a subtle relationship to the creation of Adam. Dust elsewhere in Scripture often refers to the mortality of people. So we might say that by wisdom, dust became Adam, and by folly, Adam became dust. And so do we. God, by wisdom, creates and builds up and enriches and folly destroys and kills. Much like Jesus' statement about the thief in John 10. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came there, they might have life, might have it abundantly. When God told Adam that he would die if he ate the forbidden fruit, this wasn't an arbitrary rule. This was, in fact, an announcement of of a law that God had already put in place in creation. Sin brings death. So we simply cannot live contrary to the order by which the world was made and not expect the consequences. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Sorry to break it to you, you are not special. Okay? You cannot live contrary to God's ways and not expect to experience the consequences. Now, there's another element to this, and it is the, the infinite joy and delight of God in creation. Now, years ago, I read a sermon in which the preacher said that God created humanity because he was lonely. Well, I'll tell you, you could not be more wrong. <laughs> okay. God did not create people because he's lonely. Now, that's in the creation legends from other cultures. That's not in Scripture. God creates us out of what we see here, the overflow of joy and love that, it, that is a part of the relationship among Father and Son and Spirit. And out of that, there is this, this joy, this delight that leads to creation, that leads to God creating a world in which people could live and be delighted by the Lord and delight in Him in return. It's astounding. God didn't create us because He needed, it, needed us. He didn't create us because He was lonely, because He's you know, some you know, complex divine being seeking relationship, hoping for the best, like you'd see in the classified ads. You know, three in one, but otherwise quite lonely. No. Okay. God didn't create us because he was lonely, because he needed us. It was because he is love. And he creates a world that is perfectly fine-tuned for us to live in and enjoy. To enjoy a, 
a sunset, to enjoy a sunrise that, well, at least in the winter months here. <laughs> I won't say how many sunrises I enjoy in the summer months because they aren't many. But um, partly because our window faces east and I think, I'm just not enjoying this at four in the morning. So, but I know I should. I know I should. You pray that I'll, my joy will increase. But I sometimes picture this, just the sheer exuberance, the delight of God, as by his word, stars and planets and galaxies take shape. The earth takes its shape with its incredible fine-tuning fit, just right for us to live and enjoy and give thanks to him and delight in him. It's like he said, hey, watch this, and just laughs in delight. And literally, there is, in, in the wording here in the, in the Hebrew, it is the idea of of laughter, of almost playfulness. It's like you just said, hey, hey, y'all, as you'd say in the South, hey, y'all, watch this, right? And, and just laughs as, as, by his word, whales begin to exist, and giraffes, and elephants, and koalas, and amoeba, and plankton, and, and just a sheer astounding range of creatures, even mosquitoes and ticks. <laughs> you know, he has his reasons. Maybe he'll tell us. But all of this is just a reflection of the joy of, of God himself. And so we find then that the, in this last section, verses 32 to 36, that wisdom invites us to become wise and enter into the joy of God himself. So he says, now then, my children, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Listen to my instruction and be wise. Do not disregard it. Blessed are those who listen to me, watching daily at my doors. Because God doesn't give all wisdom all at once. He gives it over time. We, we learn, we grow daily. Watching daily at his doors, waiting at my doorway. For those who find me, find life. See, this is not preference. This is not taste. This is life. And receive favor, grace, from the Lord. But those who fail to find me, harm themselves. All who hate me, love death. Now, if I said, raise your hand, all of you who love death, just raise your hand. Nobody's going to say, well, I love death. But the heart is open to God. There are no secrets. He knows that despite your pretense of loving what is good, you love folly and you're an idolater. And God is calling you to abandon your idolatry and your folly, humble yourself before him, embrace his wisdom. So if you would become wise, you must first realize that before wisdom is a pursuit that we do, it is a response to who God is in Christ. That is first and foremost, because wisdom opens this passage calling to us. So if we want to become wise, first there is a response. We are responding. We're not starting this. We're not initiating this. God is. Then we must realize that Jesus Christ and him alone, he alone, is worthy of our faith and hope and love. We have to recognize that our default our default is to rely on our own wisdom and not God's. And we have to make a choice, just like um, it says in verse 32, listen to me, listen to my instruction. Those who find me find life. We have to make a choice. It is, it's like an Old Testament version of Jesus saying, if you want to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And when Jesus said that, he's not saying, you know, rob fewer banks, smoke fewer cigarettes. He's saying, renounce yourself. Do not depend on your own wisdom, your own resources, your own knowledge, your own heart. Deny yourself, as Jesus says, take up your cross, follow me. 
So we make a choice to humble ourselves before the Lord, put our hope in him. Now notice this again is closely desired to desire. It's not about what we know. This is not about information. It is about what we want, about what our hearts desire. And we need a new heart. If you are here today and you say, my heart is not new, you want it to be new. Well, that is only because God is at work in you. There is hope for you. If you will humble yourself before him, he will give you a new heart. He will forgive you and he'll set you free. But otherwise, if you desire death, you'll get it. If you desire and want folly, you'll get that with all that it, it brings. Now, here it's like wisdom commands us to love, but you can't command love, right? I mean, if, if someone commands love, then that sort of takes the fun out of it, you know. It's like if I bring flowers home to care and she says, those are nice. And I say, well, I had to. Like, well, wow. <laughs> okay. Not, not really uh, relationally strengthening, shall we say, and I've never done that, just for the record. But Proverbs 8, even though it uses imperative language, it isn't commanding, it is stirring up our affections by showing us the beauty of wisdom, the magnificence, the excellence, the, the majesty of it. I, I just find my heart captivated by this, by this, by the gospel. So if if you find yourself here today saying, I, I want to love wisdom, I don't. I want to love Jesus, I want to follow Jesus, I don't. Let me urge you first to meditate first on his love. Because love creates love. Love generates love. And you may find your heart softening, changing over time. Now as we transition to communion, uh, which we will do in a few minutes, let's just reflect on the wisdom of God in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Paul tells us, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. What does he mean? He means that the message of the cross, that it is this message that, that God is not looking for us to do something, that God has done it for us in Christ. He has come to earth, lived a perfect life, died a death that we deserved. This looks like utter defeat to be crucified in the most shameful manner possible, no one saw that as a victory except Jesus and Satan. Okay. Uh, victory for Jesus, defeat for Satan. They both knew what was going on there. By his death, Jesus purchased our forgiveness and our freedom in our life. By his resurrection, he's conquered death for us. Invites us today to experience those very things, forgiveness and freedom and life. And that's what we remember as we take the supper. Uh, that's what brings us here today. That is why we can commit ourselves to the Lord and to his wisdom. That is why wisdom is so delightful, delightful to us because in one way or another, it points us to Jesus. As the first Peter says, we, though we don't see him right now, we love him and are filled with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Let's pray and then we'll enter into communion. Father, thank you for wisdom. Thank you for the beauty of wisdom. Oh, I pray that my heart will be more captivated, that the hearts of my friends here today, those listening, those here in this room today, those watching online would be captivated by you, delight in you, delight in your good gifts for your sake and enjoy your good gifts. And as we enjoy your good gifts, may that move us into enjoying you. Grant us deliverance from our folly because we are foolish. Our hearts are are so uh, fastened to our own folly. Have mercy on us, O God, according to your steadfast love, your unfailing love. 
Grant us freedom. For those here today who do not yet know you, who long for a new heart, I pray that today those things would be clear, that today would be pivotal in their lives, that you would do what only you can do in each of our hearts. We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.